As you might imagine, being a priest out in public means that not infrequently you will find yourself involved in talking with strangers or relative strangers about things that most people are told to avoid talking about with people that they don't know very well. Religion, politics, and morality. Now, as you might suspect, some of those conversations can be at times a little argumentative and that people bring up these issues with a priest precisely because they hold some theological or moral opinion different from the church. The most entertaining of these conversations are where the person talking to me premises the discussion by saying something to the effect of, well, I know what the Catholic Church officially teaches, but certainly you can't think or believe that nonsense, do you? And I have the guilty satisfaction of telling them, actually, yes, I do. But it's interesting that sometimes random people will also strike up a conversation with a priest they're not interested in getting into a debate. Instead, they are genuinely seeking out the priest's moral compass to help them deal with an ethically difficult situation, even if they aren't Catholic or even Christian or even religious at all. One of the things that I've learned is that in these types of conversations where we are simply talking about what is morally right or wrong, I will often out of habit sometimes refer to something that is morally wrong as a sin. And almost invariably, the person who I am talking to will have a very negative and uncomfortable reaction to the use of that word, sin. On one level, this, the kind of reaction that they have seems oddly misplaced because I'm not using the term sin in a theological way. I'm simply using it as a synonym for a bad action without any specific reference to God or heaven or hell or any other Christian concept. For us as Christians, anything that reason tells us is morally untoward is going to be a sin. For example, stealing, violence, hatred, greed, and the like. Yes, it's true that the revealed aspect of our faith creates an additional layer of moral obligation to follow the precepts of the church and to live by the supernatural calling of charity. But by and large, most of the things that we should or shouldn't do as Christians are dictated by the natural law. We can and should be able to speak a common language of moral truth in most matters with any person of goodwill. But I think the reason that the interjection of the term sin causes such a reaction is because many people sense that it brings a particularly religious sensibility to the question of morality that they would prefer to avoid. But why? The reason, I think, is because many people are content to believe that there's a moral right and wrong. They aren't relativists. But to bring sin into the picture raises an uncomfortable question about what it means when a person commits a moral fault. Because most people want to believe, unless they have a well-formed Christian conscience, is that to the extent that there is a God and an afterlife in heaven to which humans can aspire, that the only fair criteria by which God can admit people to heaven or not is by an examination of the full context of their life, by which they mean in the final judgment, God will look at all of the morally consequent things that I've done. He'll look at the bad, but he'll also look at the good. And his criteria will be whether the good things that I've done outweigh the bad. 
No bad thing will be inherently disqualifying in itself, so long as it's equaled or outweighed by some other good thing. Yet the terms sin suggests correctly a breach in one's relationship with God caused by a specific bad action, a breach that cannot be repaired simply by doing some other good thing of equal or greater weight than the bad thing that was done. This is why the term scares people, because they want to believe in what I call the financial audit model of salvation. Credits on one side of the ledger and debits on the other. And so long as the overall balance is positive, then they think God will be satisfied. It's a very human, utilitarian way of looking at things. In a lot of things in life, we learn to accept the good with the bad and to be satisfied if the positives outweigh the negatives. We consider jobs or houses or cars or schools or even spouses, for example, to be acceptable if their good qualities are greater than their bad. But when it comes to sin, the first reading tells us that this is not the way that God sees things. For we are told, when someone virtuous turns away from virtue to commit iniquity and dies, it is because of the iniquity he committed that he must die. But if he turns from wickedness that he has committed and does what is right and just, then he shall preserve his life. Since he has turned away from the sins that he has committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. God is not keeping a running tally on us. Rather, he is looking to the present state of our souls. A person can do all kinds of things that are good, but then they can sin and turn away from God, in which case all their good works will not save them. By contrast, a person can live a bad life full of sin. But if they turn to God in genuine repentance and begin living uprightly, then the door of heaven is open to them. We are judged by our disposition to God at the time we are called in judgment at death, not by our track record. And if we really stop and think, this makes sense because as Christians, we have a personal relationship to the triune God. Personal relationships are not defined by weighing up positives and negatives. Personal relationships are defined by dispositions that maintain the bonds of charity. Imagine that you had a friend whom you've enjoyed a long and fruitful relationship with. Yet that friend then did something to you that totally betrayed you, wantonly insulted you, or broke a confidence, or seriously hurt you in some way. Now, if that person was later sorry for what they did, you might well forgive them, and the relationship could be repaired and would continue. But imagine if the friend said to you, look, I did what I did, and I'm not sorry for that. But you should still be my friend because of all of the other good things that I've done for you, and all the great times that we've shared together. Of course, you would reject that person. No one conducts their personal relationships on the financial audit model. Yet somehow people expect admission to heaven to be run like this. Because we have the unfortunate tendency to think of God mechanistically, as if he is tallying up sins and good works like a banker handling withdrawals and deposits, instead of conceiving our connection to God as a personal relationship born of grace. If we sin mortally, we break the bond of charity with God. And unless we repent of that by seeking absolution, it doesn't matter what came before 
or what comes after. We've left the state of grace. The only thing that will bring us back is repentance and the grace of the sacrament of confession, not any good work or series of good works. Unfortunately, believing in the financial audit model of salvation leads people to deny the reality of sin and the way at which it can, if we die in this sin, deprive us of heaven. We should remember the words of the Catechism. Mortal sin results in a loss of charity and a privation of sanctifying grace. That is the state of grace. If it is not redeemed by repentance and God's forgiveness, it causes exclusion from God's kingdom and the eternal death of hell. Now that's a scary word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.